There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Before we lose this thing completely, the first Samuel chapter one, and please stand when you get that. Starting a new book today, first Samuel chapter one. was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the mountain of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Lord, it's just been just a great time of worship this morning, and we have felt your spirit here. And now we pray, Lord, that that same spirit would take your word and apply it to our lives. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The story is told of one time when the Lone Ranger and Tonto found themselves in dire straits. They had been riding north when they came up on a tribe of aggressive Indians. What are we going to do, Tonto? Go west, Kimasabi. Well, they went west, and sure enough, they ran up on some more Indians. What now, Tonto? Go east, Kimasabi. They turned east, and wouldn't you know it, they came up on another tribe of very hostile Indians. What now, old friend, the Lone Ranger asked. We must go south, Kimasabi. Well, they topped the trail, and to their dismay, waiting on them was a bunch more very unfriendly Indians. The Lone Ranger, knowing that their time was short, looked at Tonto and said, It looks like we are finally done for, old friend. To which Tonto replies, What you mean we, pale face? Have you ever felt that sometimes people just don't understand what you're going through? This morning we're going to be introduced to Hannah, a lady who probably felt a lot like the Lone Ranger. Since we finished 1 Corinthians a couple weeks ago, we now head back into the Old Testament. 
The last book that we finished was the book of Judges, and now we will begin our study of 1 Samuel. But before we get into the verses, I think that a little bit of background will help set the stage. Samuel is considered the writer of Samuel up to the 25th chapter, which records his death. He didn't write anything after that, just so we're clear. Apparently, Nathan and Gad completed the rest of the books. We learned this from 1 Samuel 10.25 and 1 Chronicles 29.29. In 1 Samuel, we find the story which continues into 2 Samuel of the three great leaders in the nation of Israel. The three leaders were Samuel, whose story begins in chapter 1, Saul, the first king of Israel, whose story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 9, and whose death occurs at the end of 1 Samuel, and David, Israel's second and greatest king, who will enter the story at 1 Samuel 16, but will not become king until the early chapters of 2 Samuel. And just to give you an idea of how great this man Samuel became, let me read to you what God himself says about him. In Jeremiah 15:1, God condemns the nation of Judah, and he declares, Then the Lord said to me, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, My heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Can you imagine the honor that God afforded Samuel there? Even if Moses and Bill Scott stood before me, it doesn't have quite the same ring, does it? Samuel was such a great man that he was equal to Moses in the eyes of the Lord. And that's pretty heady company to be included with the likes of Moses. And keep that in mind as we make our way through his life. The two books of Samuel contain many similar features. We read of the rise of the kingdom of Israel. Recorded in these books is the story of David and Goliath and the unusual and touching friendship between David and Jonathan. We have the account of King Saul's visit to the witch of Endor. And finally, we have the record of David's great shame with Bathsheba and of the rebellion of his son, Absalom. There are primarily four subjects that can be considered as themes of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Prayer is the first. 1 Samuel opens with prayer, and 2 Samuel closes with prayer, and there's a great deal of prayer in between. A second theme is the rise of the kingdom. We have recorded in these books the change in the government of Israel from a theocracy to a kingdom. Third, the work of the Holy Spirit in empowering man for divinely appointed tasks is also evident. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon both Saul and David after their anointing as king. And fourth, the book of Samuel demonstrates the personal and national effects of sin. The sins of Eli and his sons resulted in their deaths, and we will see that lack of the reverence for the Ark of the Covenant will lead to the death of a number of Israelites. Saul's disobedience resulted in the Lord's judgment, and he was rejected as king over Israel. And although David was forgiven for his sin of adultery with Bathsheba after his murder and his confession, he still suffered the inevitable and devastating consequences of his sin. Samuel tells of God's people beginning where the book of Judges leaves off. Now, in our Bibles, the book of Ruth intervenes, but the history timeline actually moves from Judges directly in to 1 Samuel. And if you look back to the last sentence in Judges, we find a sad and desperate situation. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Judges is the time with no king. And rather than delight in the reign of God, Israel throws off the shackles of religion. But rebellion brings misery, and the people then plead for a redeemer. The book of Judges is the book of no king and describes a nation in which anarchy was the norm. Israel wasn't a united people as during the time of Joshua, but it was a loose confederation of tribes with God-appointed judges ruling in widely separated areas. And if Judges is the book of no king, then 1 Samuel is the book of man's king. The people of Israel ask for a king, and so God gives them a Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, who we will see turns out to be a tragic failure. Samuel was a transitional figure in that he was the last of the judges. Samuel was God's bridge builder at a critical time in Jewish history when the weak confederation of tribes desperately needed some direction. But during those dark days of the judges, a love story takes place that is recorded in the book of Ruth. Boaz marries Ruth the Moabitess, and from their union came Obed, the father of Jesse, who became the father of David the king. The book of Ruth ends with the name of David, Ruth 4.22. And 1 Samuel tells the story of David's successful preparation for reigning on the throne of Israel. And it was from David's family that Jesus Christ, the son of David, was born. Now, in human history, it may appear to us that truth is forever on the scaffold and wrong is forever on the throne. But that isn't heaven's point of view. As we study 1 Samuel, we will see that God is clearly and always in control. While he is long-suffering and merciful and answers the prayers of his people, he is also holy and just and punishes sin. The books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles record many sins and failures on the part of God's people, but they also remind us that it is God who is still on the throne, and when he isn't allowed to rule, he will often overrule. He is the Lord of hosts, and his purposes will be accomplished. The Lord is mentioned over 60 times in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel as he is the chief actor in this drama. Now, men and women are free to make their choices, good or bad. But it is Jehovah, the Lord of history, who ultimately accomplishes his purposes in and through the nations. Okay, with all that said, let's look at verse 1 together. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Tofu, the mother of Igloo. I never know for sure if you're listening or not. People say they're using their Bible app, but it may be Angry Birds for all I know. But enough about my hang-ups. Back to the Bible. The son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Why does the Bible mention that Elkanah and Hannah are Ephraimites? What's the big deal about Ephraim? Well, let me give you a verse in the name you, better, you may better recognize it as. This is Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. You may recognize that as a verse heard around Christmas as it is predicting the birthplace of Jesus Christ. 
So the lesson for us from chapter 1 is that God answers to the crisis in Israel, like God's answer to the crisis in the world, comes in a most unexpected place. It began for Israel with a childless woman named Hannah with family connections to Bethlehem. Just as we must look to Mary and another child also born in Bethlehem, if we are to see God's answer for the entire world. The story of 1 Samuel eventually leads to the one whom God has exalted with the name that is above every name. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at verse 2 with me. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Well, here's trouble right off. Elkanah has not one, but count them, two wives. Sounds like he should be living in Salt Lake City instead of Ephraim, but I digress. Hannah's name means favored. Penina's name means ruby. Yet although Penina is stone cold and rock hard, we will see that she is no gem. But why would Elkanah have two wives? Well, in verse 2, Hannah's name comes before Penina's, and polygamy could only occur legally when the first wife was barren. So the conclusion to be drawn from those facts is that Hannah and Elkanah were married first, and when they did not have children, he took a second wife, Penina. Now, this is where the culture must be taken into consideration. God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, Genesis 1.22. Therefore, the rabbis of that time considered barrenness to be a curse from God. They believed it to be an indication of sin or something wrong spiritually in the woman's life. So as a result, Hannah's barren condition would have weighed on her greatly. Let me say that in the Old Testament, God's ideal was Adam and Eve as in one man and one woman when it came to marriage. But when reading verses like this, when some people mistakenly think that God condones polygamy. Now, polygamy is not condoned in the Bible, but simply reported as what is taking place. Such as when a newspaper reports a crime, it's not condoning it, but it is simply reporting the story. And while it is true that the law of God contains regulations concerning a man having more than one wife, this, however, is not an indication of God's approval. Rather, God is simply regulating an already difficult situation, much as he did with slavery. But as you go through the Bible, you will see the practice of polygamy increasingly prohibited. It is made even clear in the New Testament that a man was to be the husband of one wife. And you don't see any polygamy in the book of Acts or in the early church. Not only that, without exception, whenever you see polygamy in Scripture, it always results in problems. One man said, if for no other reason, you have multiple mother-in-laws. Now, I didn't say that. Now, Elkanah may have did what was culturally acceptable, but not biblically acceptable. And as a result, he brought hurtful tension and competition to his wife and his family. And by the way, just because something is culturally acceptable doesn't mean that it is right. For example, in our culture, gambling is acceptable. Lust is acceptable. Covetousness is acceptable. Pride is acceptable. But those practices are not biblically acceptable. 
They produce financial, emotional, and relational tension and competitions in our family. If we hope to experience happiness in our marriage and our family, we need to stop doing what the Bible makes clearly is unacceptable. Actually, there is one verse in the New Testament that forbids strictly a man having two wives. It was Jesus himself that said, No man can serve two masters. I'm just joking. Don't email me. Verse 3. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. So we see here that Elkanah is a very religious man. He would make the annual trip to sacrifice to the Lord. Also in verse 3, we are introduced to the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. How can I say this nicely? The boys are vile and disgusting thugs, which we will get into later. Now, it's obvious that Elkanah truly loves Hannah. It sounds a lot like the story of Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? Right down to the two wives and the miracle baby. But the portion I really want us to zero in on this morning is the last seven words of verse 5. They read, Although the Lord had closed her womb. Do you know what that means? That means the problem that she was having came from the hand of the Lord. This is one of the hardest lessons we will ever have to learn. It means that some of our problems are given to us by the Lord himself. It is God who is behind the circumstances of life. And sometimes we don't really want to believe this. We'd rather blame it all on Satan or on someone else. And there are many churches that if Hannah would have told them that God had closed their womb or her womb, they would instantly rebuke her for having a negative confession. Well, that's what it is. She is confessing a negative thing that is happening in her life. It's also called reality, by the way. But if a person is a Christian, it is God himself who allows good things and bad things to enter into our lives. Even when he allows us the free will to sin, he will use that to discipline and teach us that the way of the transgressor is hard and that his ways are truly and always the best. But let us be honest this morning. It's not always easy to give God the situations in our lives. I heard about a woman who for many years couldn't sleep because she worried that her home would be burglarized. One night, her husband heard a noise in the house, so he went downstairs to investigate. When he got there, to his great surprise, he actually found a burglar. The husband said to the burglar, Come upstairs and say hello to my wife. She's been waiting ten years to meet you. Now, all of us can laugh at and agree with that story, but the truth is we must put our trust in God and allow Him to be in control of all of our situations. God is in charge, and as such, we should echo Job's faith in Job 2.10. Job said, Shall we accept good from God 
and not trouble. Ecclesiastes 7.14 also puts it well. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Faith in God means knowing and trusting God's sovereignty and His goodness to us even when things are happening in our lives that we may be unhappy about. What's that called? Christian maturity. And I'm not implying that I always have that nailed down either. Notice verse 6. An arrival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. That introduction to 1 Samuel is one of the most heart-wrenching and brutal passages in all of the Bible. Nine gut-wrenching Hebrew words were chosen to describe in painstaking detail Hannah's suffering. The Hebrew word weep or wept occurs three times in verses 7, 8, and 10. The words provoked and grief occurs twice in verses 6, 7, and 16. And the words downhearted, bitterness of soul, sorrowful spirit, and anguish all occur once. Now, I don't mean to alarm you, but in life, no matter how much you pray, fast, or serve, there will be times of disappointment. There will be times when we will be greatly discouraged in our faith. Christians face real problems, not fake ones. Hannah already felt badly enough, but to make matters worse, Penina seemed to have a baby every time she turned around. She was spitting out kids like those old Pez candy dispensers. Does anybody remember those? Google that if you're under 30. Hannah probably felt like the Indian that cowboys found while riding across the plain. They saw an Indian lying flat on the ground. He had one hand up in the air and his ear pressed into the dirt. As he pulled up close, he said, Stagecoach, two horses, one white, one black. Large woman with a flowered hat, man holding a rifle, little boy holding a suitcase. The cowboy was astonished. He asked, how in the world can you figure all that out by just listening to the ground? The Indian said, stagecoach ran over me half an hour ago. <laughs> Have you ever felt run over by life? When those times occur, and they will, the question left to us is, how will we respond? One thing we need to do is view things from an eternal perspective. What do I mean? If you would have been around in those days, you may have looked at Hannah and Penina and thought to yourself, it is obvious to me that Penina is blessed and Hannah is cursed. You know what, though? Penina had a number of children, but we don't know any of their names. Her children came and went, and we know nothing of them. But Samuel is an Old Testament hero still revered even today. That's how it often is in the life of faith. We can be tempted to look at our unsafe friends and family, and they seem to have it made. They don't struggle with sin. They just follow their base natures with no guilt. But always remember that this world is not our home. James says our life here is a vapor that appears for just a moment, and then it vanishes. 
It's like in the winter when you go outside and you block your breath, you see it just for a second, and then it's gone. That's a picture of the brevity of this life. We need to remember that this world is not our home, and one day we'll be exceedingly glad that we live life God's way. Whereas the hymn says, Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. And don't miss verse 7. So it went on year by year. This was not endured for a weekend or for even a month, but more like for an entire decade. And then note well the rest of verse 7. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, speaking of Penina, used to provoke her. You know, like Hannah, we also have an adversary who often seems to provoke us on our way to the house of the Lord. Don't be surprised when Satan will do whatever he can do to keep you away from coming to church. We now know that Hannah was about to be greatly blessed. And so will the believer who makes coming to the Lord's house a priority. And really, if you think about it, the very fact that Satan continually tries to keep us from fellowship with other believers should show us the importance of it. Last verse, verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Ladies, do you recognize that kind of logic and reasoning? That guy sounds just like, uh, well, me. Men can be so thick. Honey, why are you crying? Why are you not eating? You can imagine Hannah shouting back, Where have you been the last ten years? Panani has been railing on me every day about being barren. Do you even live in this house? But God bless him. At least he's trying. The Bible says concerning men about women, Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 7, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, in his defense, he probably felt bad that Hannah was crying. No one wants to make his wife cry. Even if you do it by accident, you still feel bad. When Rita, Gloria, and Connie went to Russia, I forget the particulars, but I texted something nice about wanting Connie to come home, to which Rita texted back informing me that I had made Connie cry. To which I texted back, If she thinks she's crying now, wait until she sees the laundry. So Elkanah, out of concern and love, says to Hannah, Why are you crying, Snookycums? That last part may not be in your Bible. Now this is where he should have stopped talking. But then he adds, Am I not better to you than ten sons? You have me, baby. What more could you possibly want? The thing is, it's not about you, Elkanah. He might at least have said, Hannah, you are worth more than ten sons to me. I wonder if his attempt at empathy was appreciated. Now, I may be going out on a limb here, but it seems like Elkin is doing what many of us husbands do when our wives are upset. Instead of listening to her pain, he seems to be rationalizing her problems and her feelings. He's trying to solve when all he should do is seek 
to understand. If you don't get anything else out of today, remember this. We should always walk softly around a broken heart. But it's not enough to see the problem. We must also see the right solution. During World War II, the British Navy was frustrated by the threat of constant German submarines. They couldn't locate them until finally one officer offered this solution. He says, once you bring the ocean to a boil, the submarines will be forced to surface. Then you can just pick them off. He was then asked, but how does one boil the ocean? He replied, I don't know. I just give the ideas. I don't implement them. Now, Hannah was frustrated, but like that naval officer, Elkin's solution was pretty much worthless. Ultimately, only God and not man can solve the problems of a human heart. How can you be sad when you have me, baby? Have you noticed that there is no reply from Hannah? There was. They had to take it out of the Bible. (laughs) It said something like, and then Hannah did take up a skillet and struck at him (laughs) right in the face. So in closing, what do we do when it seems everything and everyone seems to be against us? It's a question that we have all struggled with to some degree or the other at different times in our lives. It's the question of of does God see me and does God really care? If ever a young man had the right to ask that question, it would seem that George Matheson did. Born in 19th century Scotland, George became a brilliant theology student at the University of Glasgow where he earned a graduate degree. While at school, he fell in love and was soon engaged to be married. But meanwhile, his eyesight began to fade rapidly. When he became totally blind at age 20, his fiancée broke off the engagement, explaining she was not cut out to be the wife of a blind man. Matheson was devastated. The pain of her abandonment stayed within him in all of his blindness. He never married. Yet he went on to become a highly successful pastor at a large church in Edinburgh where he preached to 1,500 members every Sunday. Now, many men enduring such a blow might have struck out at God, thinking that God had abandoned them. Many could have thought, I've dedicated my life to you, God, yet you allowed me to fall in love, and then you snatched away my fiancé and my eyesight. You must not really love me, after all. But Matheson knew better. Though his beloved fiancé had left him, he knew that God would not. Out of his pain emerged a classic hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. His first verse is a ringing affirmation of the love of God reaching across the chasm of sadness. It goes, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Though Matheson was physically blind, his spiritual vision, like Hannah's, was 2020. Let us all strive to attain that type of maturity. And Father, we know that even though we are Christians, that does not insulate us from the troubles of this world, Lord. 
we get sick, we have fender benders, we lose jobs. All those kind of things happen to us the same way they happen to the most vile unbeliever. But the difference is, Lord, we have you with us in those times. And you take those times, Lord, and you mold us and you make us to be a little bit more like your son, Jesus. So let us be mature, Father. Give us an eternal perspective on life. And let us be more like your son. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.